Hello, and welcome to The Bunker, a podcast for students of American history. Today's date is May 29th, 2020, and this is episode number 22, where I'm joined by five student co-hosts to discuss domestic issues during the early Cold War. All right, everyone's here. Is everyone uh, everyone's audio ready to go? Yeah. Yep. Sweet. All right. Well, look at that. You guys are making history, man. The first co-hosted <laughs> review podcast. Very cool. All right. Um, I'm going to do the same thing I did when I attempted this um, on Tuesday. I'm going to start with a, a context document, and then we'll just go right into the, the order of questions as we had kind of laid out. You know, starting with loyalty oaths, going to the Red Scare Redux, Hollywood 10, HUAC, down to Alger Hess. Sound good? Okay. I'll also uh, edit out any kind of dead space that we have transitioning through so this doesn't turn into like a, a two-hour uh, um and uh thing so we can try to <laughs> clean it up a little bit so we can make it a nice tight review for everybody. All right, here is um, here's my first little context document here. And this is from a Gallup poll. Do you guys know what a Gallup poll is? No. no. You guys ever answered the phone with questions, like political questions about how you feel about the president or your thoughts on gun control, anything like that? These have been going on since 1935. So basically they, do, they used to do write-in campaigns. Now they do phone calls. So the last Gallup poll was on a presidency of Donald Trump and approval rating. That was May 1st through 3rd. And his approval rating was 49% based on this random selection of calls. So this one, uh, this is a Gallup poll from 1953 to 1962. Uh, and here are the issues that are most important to the American people during that time frame. So here's 1953 is the Korean War. Uh, 1954 is the threat of war. 1955 is working out a peace. Uh, 1956 is the threat of war. 1957 is keeping out of war. 1958 is economic conditions. 1959 is keeping the peace. 1960 is relations with the Soviet Union, 61 is prices and inflation, and in 62, war, peace, and international tensions. So in terms of public opinion, you can get a sense what's on people's minds between 1953 and 1962. All right. So there's our context. I wanted to kind of frame that for a conversation about loyalty. So there's such a tension in the air about the Cold War, and to predate that Gallup poll, 1949, China falls to the communists, so, so we lose red China. Uh, we also have the Soviets detonating the hydrogen bomb. So we have issues that are ever-present. So we'll start with, uh, with Britain and the purpose of the loyalty oath, a little story behind that, and we'll transition to Derek. So, Braden, you are up, co-host number one. Okay. So uh, Executive Order 9835 allowed background investigations and required loyalty oaths from people involved in the U.S. government if they were suspected of being anti-democratic or supporters of communism. Well, the and similar word suspected there is the opposite word, uh, the operative word. So you, if you were suspected, you could be investigated. That's problematic. All right, go ahead. Yep. Uh, University of California also passed a similar uh, legislation called the Levering Act uh, in 1950, which required oaths from any of their employees and they ended up firing 31 people who refused to sign it. That puts me in a tight spot, too, as a teacher. I don't know what I would do if they asked me to take a loyalty oath to keep my position. Now, I think about it now, the financial ramifications of that, to be principled enough to say, listen, I'm a loyal American. I don't have to prove it. To be asked to sign the oath or leave would be a tough spot to be in. There is one, uh, one of the gentlemen that was actually fired um, or suspended, ended up becoming the president of the California state system. So 
uh, he got a little karma in that regard. So that declaration of allegiance was a tool they used for defense. What was the court's reaction to all that? Because obviously you as American citizens have the right to freedom of association and expression and speech. So what did the Supreme Court say about loyalty oaths? Yep. So eventually the Supreme Court began ruling that the loyalty oaths were unconstitutional in different states and uh, upholding the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Uh, one of the cases was Cramp v. Board of Public Instruction, and they removed the oath um, in which Florida teachers had to take regarding communism. Oh, nice. So you'll, you'll see that challenged at the state level, and eventually the court rules in their favor. So you do have – remember we talked about this before. In a time of war crisis, your civil liberties can be infringed on. We've seen that before. Just another example. But we did have the court actually come to the aid of the uh, First Amendment in this regard. You guys remember the Schenck case in World War One? Guys just handing out pamphlets protesting the draft, and he gets thrown in the clink for that. So we're seeing some interesting developments here in, in terms of free speech. Nice, Breed. I'm going to pass it off to Derek. Um, and I titled the section of your notes, The Red Scare Redux. Um, why did I go with that title, Derek? Uh, because it's not the first Red Scare in American history. Uh, the first one occurred in... Uh, 1917, after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, and they gained a new uh, government. Yeah, when we had that influence or the spread, the fear, the spread of the the Bolshevism around the globe, uh, how did that show itself here in America? Um, after the people of America were at like a all time high for nationalism because of World War One, they feared that immigrants from Russia and Eastern Europe would come into the country and try to overthrow the government. So it kind of led to a state where immigration was not looked widely upon. Yeah, it's going to be limited, definitely. You actually see it in uh, 1921 and 24. We have quotas established targeting particular immigrants from particular parts of the world. So that fear manifests itself in a series of raids. So when you write the first Red Scare is 1917, what was the name of the guy that actually led that first Red Scare? You know, kicking down doors and throwing people out of the country for their suspicion or the association uh, with the communists. You have that guy's name? Uh, no, I, I didn't Attorney, find that guy's Attorney name. Attorney General. Anyone know that from the crew, from the collection of co-hosts? Who's the Attorney General from the early 1900s that led the first Red Scare? His name is A. I, Mitchell Palmer. You were about to say that, Burns? No, I was going to say, like, I knew someone who, like, ignited it, like Eugene Debs. Oh, good call. An agitator, a labor activist. Uh, he ends up getting thrown in jail for speaking out against the war. And it's guys like that that really scare people. And A. Mitchell Palmer being the, the most powerful lawmaker in, or the law enforcer in the land is the one who the Palmer raids. Right? That leads us to the redux, which is Joseph McCarthy. So, Derek, what's to, uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy's story? He was just a U.S. senator from Wisconsin who really fueled the widespread fear of communism in the United States. and Opportunists, no doubt about that. So good. We'll get used to this back and forth. So how do you feel this communist scare? What did he do to um, explain He accused it? a lot of people in the U.S. government that they were communists and were supporting and working for the Communist Party with little to no evidence. Yeah, who needs evidence, right? So we're in a situation where it appears that we're losing the Cold War. China is now communist. Uh, the Soviets are detonating A-bombs and H-bombs. And he's saying the reason this is happening is because there's people in the State Department with communist affiliations. Does he have a, a number? Does he target any particular people? What's the what's he start to do to really whip up this anti-red fervor? 
Do you know what he does or who he accuses or, or any numbers in terms of the people he thinks that are in the State Department that are actually aligned with the Soviet communist? I have written down that he accused um, hundreds of people and 93 were convicted of being part of the Communist Party. Yeah, he actually, the number, we don't even, it's a tough to find a number. So if you're doing some research on this, it's kind of a moving target. You talk to him one day. So when he initially made the claim, it was like 205. And days later, it's down to 57. So he never really had an exact number and never really had any hard uh, evidence. And as a result, he, he costs a lot of people their, their livelihoods and in some cases their lives. All right. So we, we tend to associate uh, McCarthyism with that, you know, unsubstantiated claims against people like witch hunts. Uh, so there, there's your redux with McCarthy. Whatever happened to him? You know what happened to McCarthy after he goes on this rampage for like four or five years? Like lose a lot of respect from... Yeah, to say the least. He, um, he makes a misstep. He actually um, challenges the United States Army and our president's a former five-star general. So he does these nationally televised debates against the Army, the Army McCarthy hearings, and he really gets beat up. Uh, and the Senate will censure him. So if you ever heard that expression, censure means they're going to very vocally um, disapprove of your actions. It's a formal standard of dis- disapproval. They're not really going to kick you out of office. They're just going to say, hey, you're going to be stripped of all your titles uh, or your committee titles and, and your persona non grata. He'll end up dying in 1957, a pretty hard drinker, so that caught up with him. But his name is ever associated with this time period as a result of that. Which brings me to Jillian because this spills into um, – out of the State Department into the, the culture, um, the magic motion picture makers in Hollywood. So, Jillian, what happened in Hollywood around the same time? So there were 10 producers, directors, and screenwriters who refused to answer questions to the HWAC, which is the House Committee on Un-American... Wait, the, ho- the House on Un-American Committee. Yeah, the triple, yeah, the House on Un-American <laughs> Activities Committee. You're exactly right, yeah. So then they were questioned by them, and then they refused to answer questions regarding their possible affiliations with communism in October of 1947, and then they were all sentenced to prison. So that regard, a lot of what they're trying to do with HUAC is get people to inform on other people. So these, um, the Hollywood 10 who came in, and, and why do you think they were targeted, actually? Why do you think they're targeting people in Hollywood? Um, people well, well, I mean, I think they were just blacklisted, which is, so they were deemed untrustworthy and ex- unacceptable in their field. So a lot of them were kind of shunned. Yeah, blacklisted. They actually have to write under uh, or produce under pseudonyms, fake mm-hmm. names, all stuff and think about what hollywood's doing back then in terms of how you can use motion pictures as a propaganda tool so they really wanted to kind of limit that any uh notables that got called before the committee or any any notables that are blacklisted that that we would know or um walt disney and ronald reagan were were called to hearings um but there was one that stood out dalton trumbo he was an american screenwriter he was blacklisted from the film industry in 1947 because he refused to give the names of colleagues with supposed communist sympathies. He was in prison for 11 months, and when he was released, like you said, he had to work under his pseudonym. He was a very talented writer. If you're interested, anyone out there, there's a great movie. I think it's 2017, and Brian Cranston plays Dalton Trumbo. It's fantastic. Little local connection with him. Um, he's going to write a movie called Spartacus. Is it, you guys ever hear of Spartacus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In that movie, there's a scene where Michael Douglas is collected with these group of slaves that have been recaptured. And basically the king says, listen, if you inform on your your fellow slaves on who the insurrectionists are, you'll all be spared. And there's this really powerful scene that Trumbo works into the screen uh, story that basically one guy stands up and says, I'm Spartacus, and then everyone else does it. And the idea was we're collectively protecting 
each other. All right. So you want us to identify who the slave revolt leader is? We're not doing it. We're all together. So Trumbo worked his way in there. I think he got a couple Academy Awards ghostwriting as well. Um, but the movie with Brian Cranston's fantastic. Now, look, I probably should have went in another order here and done HUAC first and then the Hollywood 10, but I'll skip to Katie now and she can give me the backstory on the purpose of the House on Un-American Activities Committee. Thanks, Julian. So HUAC was established originally in 1938 and basically what was described above, they just held hearings and meetings to expose and investigate possible traitors that could compromise the U.S. government. And... um it was more notably commercialized in 1947, and then um, that's when, like, the Hollywood 10, the ho- big Hollywood 10 were um, investigated. Yeah, Walt Disney's pretty notable. Ronald Reagan, at the time, I believe, was the president of the Screen Actors Guild. That's why he got called. And it becomes mm-hmm. a real show trial. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of publicity, a lot of newsreels, a lot of um, pandering in front of the camera. Um, any notables beyond the Hollywood group that were called before HUAC that we would know or that would be good case studies for how this committee worked, you know, kind of leveraging people to testify? Well, the ones that I studied were, it was uh, Dalton Trumbo, but I noticed that his, um, one of like a recurring theme that we've seen is like how literature affects political conversations. So he wrote uh, Johnny Got His Gun and it was an anti-war novel. And then that further like, um, spread his own ideas while also convincing the government of his involvement. And I think uh, members of Hollywood scene were like the easiest to um, accuse of this sort of thing, because when you're in art, it's an easy way for like freedom of expression and making, and um, that makes it easier to spread like anti-American or not traditional views because art is something that a lot of people find it um, fun to like challenge it. That's, so I think that's why a lot of the focus was on um, Hollywood. And a good chunk of them are communists too, and, and openly affiliated with the party. The thing about the committee and you had, what years did you say it was in operation? Do you have that in your notes? I said um, it established originally in uh, 1938. And so then, yeah, you're going all the way back to the 1930s. And if you remember that global depression that we're involved in, a lot of people were looking for alternative solutions to this, you know, crash in capitalism. And communism was an alternative that some people considered and pursued. A lot, you know, disavowed it or moved on. But because of that initial association, they stuck with it. You know, it stuck with them. Though some were still communists and they admitted, they said, I have the freedom to be with whatever group I want and freely express my thoughts and beliefs. And if you're communist who's making a movie about, you know, Johnny got a gun and it's an anti-war movie, then Congress could see that as you trying to get people not to want to fight a war, which would give a tactical advantage to the Russians. So it all plays in. It's perfectly played in terms of how they use literature and film and culture to kind of get people to think a different way. Uh, Very nice. By the way, that goes all the way to uh, 1975. House and Un-American Activities Committee. Over 3,000 people will be called to testify. Uh, Very nicely done. I want to now hit uh, one of the notables I actually gave to Michael to focus on because this guy's a little different. Um, His name is Alger Hiss, and he's going to be called to testify. So I'll turn it over to Michael. Michael, what's Alger Hiss's story? So Alger Hiss was a government official during this time, and he would be accused of being a Soviet spy in 1948 and then was convicted of perjury with the charge in 1950. They didn't get him for spying. They got him for perjury. He was very involved within the creation of the United Nations and worked as an official for the United Nations, but he continued to deny any relationship with the Soviet Union, but they continued to say that he was lying. Has history uh, exonerated Mr. Hiss, or or did he actually have 
connections and links to the communists. We still don't, we like really don't know, but he continues to keep like he denied it many years after the original like trials. But it's you know it's still up there. It's still it's interpretation of history. There is a, an interesting yeah. um, release of papers, and I believe it was 1995. The Venona papers came out, which was decrypted Soviet intelligence um, intercepts, and they had identified Alger Hiss in there um, as a potential um, mole in the government. Uh, what they also found out is pretty much in every level of government at that time, there were Soviet agents that were yeah. within the State Department. So the thing about him, did you see pictures of him at all in your research? What he looked like? No, not really. Not to be superficial, but he was well-dressed and polished. He's Harvard educated. He's really sharp. And a lot of people felt that the communists were kind of these, you know, fringe people uh, that were a little unkempt and just not really polished. And Hiss was polished. So that worked in his favor. Very articulate guy. But he defended him. So he said, I, I never did anything. And they didn't get him on being a spy, but, but lying. The perjury piece is important. Mm-hmm. Good call. The United Nations is another interesting piece. That's a world peacekeeping organization. So if this guy is promoting peace and other people are thinking we should be in a position to be mobilized and ready for war, there's contradictory you know, elements at play there. How about the Rosenbergs? So um, Julius Rosenberg was an engineer for the U.S. Army Signal Corps, and his wife, Ethel, worked as a secretary. And they would meet through like a communist league, but then they would be accused of leading a spy ring that was connected to the Soviet Union. And they were convicted of um, leaking top secret information about the atomic bomb. And they would have a trial in March of 1951. And what happened to the Rosenbergs? Uh, they like said they, they denied all the charges but they refused to testify against themselves under the Fifth Amendment. And they claimed that they were incriminated for their uh, radical beliefs. And then they would be sentenced to death through the electric chair. So now we have this threat and fear that there's a growing communist presence. They have access to the bomb. China's communist. So we need to have someone that show that the federal government's actually doing something to stop this from happening. He is often described as a small fry spy so he's he's more of a connector uh and a recruiter than he is a spy uh and his wife although associated with the party was more just a loyal wife and and in the venona papers she's identified by her name um so in those decrypted um messages from the soviet union all the spies have code names and and alger hiss had a code name actually but ethel rosenberg did not so um the argument was by the people at that time they leveraged um her to testify against her husband um, for a reduced sentence. Uh, it did not happen, and they were executed uh, orphaning two young boys. I did post my interview with their son, Robert Mirapol. If you get a chance, it's really interesting. Um, I just wanted to talk to him about you know, being a kid in elementary school, having your parents executed. What would that be like You know, going back to school? Yeah. People know that your parents were spies. And he actually comes to – he says in the interview that you know, I came to the conclusion that my dad was probably guilty, but my mom is the one. Uh, that was innocent and wrongly executed. So it's an interesting storyline there. Last connection there, because you have these people on the fringe, um, the other, the radical element. Uh, how does that connect to Sacco and Venzetti, the, the radicals we saw back in the 20s who were executed? What, what similarities do you see there? Um, I said that like they're similar because they started like a nationwide discussion on like what is going on. And it's a rallying point for like propaganda on both sides of the spectrum because nice. people like, they didn't really know what was going on. And some people, obviously, like some people said they did it, some said they didn't. And it just created a lot of discussion, like nationwide. Yeah, you kind of had to pick a side. 
you yeah. know, imagine being in that situation. What if you pick the side, um, you know, of Sacco and Vanzetti say, hey, these guys didn't get a fair trial and they are Italian anarchists in the 20s. And all of a sudden, just by association, you were now an anarchist or the Rosenbergs. If you felt it was an unfair trial, which it was, you immediately got grouped as a communist. So it's a really touchy conversation. It's very polarizing. Uh, a lot of judicial misconduct on both sides, but that's a story for another podcast. All right. All right, nice job. I want to hit segment two, if we can move on. This one's called uh, Consensus, Conformity, and Contradiction in the Age of Prosperity. Um, and I mentioned this. Someone picked it up when we tried this the first time. Uh, consensus, Conformity, Contradiction, Prosperity spells out CCP, which is the Soviet Union, my subtle nod to the uncomfortable paranoia living in the Cold War. All right. I want to set this up. I have my context conversation around television, um, transportation, mass migration, and social agitation. I want to focus on TV for a second. Um, it took TV, television, um, the technology, 13 years to reach an audience of 50 million. Okay, so that's a pretty extensive reach. Uh, radio, it took 38 years to reach 15 million. Uh, the World Wide Web, when it debuted in 1989, it took four years to reach uh, 50 million users. Facebook, two years to reach 50 million users, and Twitter, nine months. So I just wanted to show you how technology has expanded and extended its reach relatively quickly. I could go further with that. I think Pokemon, some app, took like a day and a half to get 50 million users, but I don't play that stuff, so I'll tap out on that one. I wanted to start with the the TV piece, and I'll send it to Braden on that, with advertising, using this new medium to kind of reach and re-socialize people. So, Braden, what's your take on the TV as a culturally influencing technology and how it advertises and targets certain people? So, yes. Yeah, so, um by this time period, 85% of households owned a TV. So advertising through television became like the way to do it. It was the easiest, most effective way. And the newest um, consumers in the market would have been mothers and teenagers. Uh, one reason was teenagers were beginning to make their own money. And by 1956, 13 million teenagers would have almost $7 billion to spend, which is a pretty good target to go for with your advertising. Yeah, nice market to carve up. Um, now, how did they market uh, the teenagers and the moms? I saw a lot of uh, ads which seemed more like new innovations for a lot of like household inventions, such as like washing machines, uh, irons, just like what could do it better, faster, seemed like the theme. Yeah, so if you're a stay-at-home mom with two little kids and you can get a new washing machine, you can do your laundry quicker, a new vacuum, clean the house quicker, all that stuff. Exactly right. And soap operas use these advertisement opportunities because they had a captive audience and the wives were watching. Another thing to think about, too, is the domestication piece. We had to re-socialize these women because they had worked in the war industries during the war, but now we want to get them back into their traditional role. So this new cult of domesticity would have them in the role they should be. That's the mother and the wives. So you see that with the products that they're buying and the commercial jingles. Uh, you guys are targeted today. You should appreciate the way uh, advertisers target you guys. It's kind of crazy. Um, nice job. Uh, looking at Derek, here's another innovation um, in terms of transportation. It's going to be the interstate highway system. So we have the TV out there. Everyone's watching TV, getting advertisements. And then we have the sale of cars. Um, we have a white hot economy. So GNP, you haven't taken economics yet, but that's the total domestic and foreign um, output in a country. So in 1945, our GNP was $200 billion. And by 1960, it's $500 billion. So we're advertising and selling a lot. 
including cars, which plays into our interstate highway system. So, Derek, what's the story of the interstate highway system? Any numbers on that? So, the interstate highway system was basically a highway system consisting of forty-two or 41,000 miles that spanned all across the United States, uh, east to west and north to south. And it cost the government $32 billion to build. Now, key distinction there, it cost the government. So, remember when we talked about the Erie Canal where it was – private investors in the state. We're now at the point after the Transcontinental Railroad that the federal government plays a role. So that $32 billion over 10 years was not so much an expense as it was an investment. So what was the impact of this investment? Um, It gave rise to the um, bigger shopping malls and truck stops and fast food along the highways. Malls like rose up due to the fact that so many people could travel along this whole highway to get to the same place in a short amount of time. Nice. Can you name any uh, particular fast food restaurants that have their origins in the 1950s? Uh, McDonald's. <laughs> nice. Nice. Now, when you say mall and you say interstate and all that culture stuff, um, and you guys see Cars, the, the movie? Uh, yeah. That is a nice look at how the interstate system could develop and encourage or accelerate suburbanization, but also kill these small towns that were bypassed by the interstate system going through. All right. Nice job. The hotels and the motels will be in there too, like the Howard Johnson. So if you're traveling more, you know, in your car and going farther away, you needed these places to kind of hang your hat for the night before you moved on. There's also a really good movie called The Green Book, which really focuses on how African-Americans um, struggled to get services on these new interstate highways uh, in the towns and the stops they uh, rested at in between their travels. It's a great book looking at or a great story looking at that the darker side of the story. Jillian, how about um, with the interstate system? Um, in the movement and mass migration. Can you tell us about the Southwest migration, the Sunbelt migration, how air conditioning plays into this whole thing? So air conditioning was originally invented in 1902, but it became popular in homes when builders began incorporating them into their home building in the 1950s. So um, it allowed for like cool ventilated houses in the warmth of the Southwest. So it promoted millions of migrations there. Nice. So now you could live in Arizona. If anyone's ever been out to Vegas or Arizona or New Mexico, it's, it's kind of an oven hot. So the fact that you have AC now allows these houses to be built with climate control. Same thing can happen with movie theaters as well. Summer would be their worst season with no AC. And once you build that technology into it, it's a great escape for people. Now, I threw a name out there for you um, that plays into this Sunbelt migration. So we have the interstate system, cars, and AC getting us out there. How does George H.W. Bush play into this story, future president of the United States? How does he play into the Sunbelt migration? He and his wife, Barbara, were among the migrants looking for an opportunity in the Sunbelt region. So in the late 1940s, they moved to West Texas from Connecticut, where he established a successful oil company in 1953. A very gutsy move, very brave move. He's a World War II vet. He's Yale educated. His dad's a former senator, Prescott Bush. And he leaves that to go out west to kind of start his own story, which is pretty impressive. He also lands kind of in the seedbed of the conservative movement, which will really start to flower in the 1960s under Goldwater because he's a Republican. So he's uh, kind of a fish out of water out there, but he really establishes the roots of the Republican uh, party out there in the Western version, the more conservative version. Uh, How about in terms of Major League Baseball? uh, How does that reflect this Sunbelt migration move out to the Southwest? So it spurred enormous economic growth in the Southwest. So as millions of people moved, sports decided to as well. So in 1957, the Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. And then in 1958, the New York Giants moved to San Francisco. 
great shift from the East Coast, New York, all the way into uh, the West Coast with California having two teams. Nice job. Brooklyn Dodgers also had a pretty good player on their team, integrated baseball. Um, Jackie Robinson. Most people don't know the last team to integrate is my beloved Boston Red Sox. They will not integrate until 1959. Bumsey Green will be the player there. Nice job. Katie, it's up to you now to talk about culture again. You seem to have a nice theme here with the Hollywood HUAC connection and now culture with the Beatniks. What can you tell us about that crew? So the Beatniks is just the name for the people who took part in the beat movement. And it was kind of just this literary era of um, nonconformity. A lot of they attacked kind of like the superficial aspects of society. It was a time people started using recreational drugs. People were more sexually free, things like that. And um, so they really criticized the materialistic culture in uh the U.S. So certain um, literary works at this time, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye, very popular. That was written in 1953. And this one highlights the themes of the superficiality. So kind of just attacking how a lot of Americans were very um, material oriented, focusing on rather than being like genuine, just like if something like looks like gold, they liked that rather than something being like value of value. Another one was Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And this was written in 1957. And um this was one of the, another one of the defining works, and um, this one added to the culture of unconformity. And that this is like a that was different for the time to like tie it back to the Red Scare. Everyone was afraid, even if um, they didn't have anything to do with communism, just like branching out, trying something new. That was still scary because people saw others being um, convicted for things that they were innocent of, but. Um, that was just a really a, a current theme in this uh, era. Yeah, it pushes a lot of that creativity underground, and, and it's kind of scary. You go to these, you know, off-the-beaten-path clubs to hear these works performed in poets like Ginsburg. Do you guys read either one of those books in 11th grade? Is that in the curriculum at all? It was a choice. Um, it was? Because it, it was, like, for this mental health unit, and that was for Catcher in the Rye was one of the choices. Oh, the old Holden Caulfield connection. Yeah, rejecting that carefree consumption, all that mindless conformity there. I never, I didn't really like Holden Caulfield. He kind of annoyed me when I read about him uh, mm-hmm. when I was your age. And I, it just reinforced that when I got older. I, I felt him to be a bit hypocritical. How do these guys actually compare to that post-war generation after World War One that were in the same position where they don't like what they see and they kind of criticize the culture around them? What we call those that group of writers, those literary agents. That was the law that was the lost generation. And so inherently after significant world war uh, world world events, in this these cases being World War One and Two, um, respectively, these sorts of movements are kind of bound to start because people need like a sense of community and like connection with one one another after like their perceptions of like what their country was supposed to be kind of get shattered by that kind of um, distress. So in the twenties, the lost generation, it was the era of just soldiers after like not knowing what to do with their, with the rest of their lives and stuff. A key um, book in this uh, era was uh, the sun also rises by Ernest Hemingway. And um, do you guys read any Hemingway in English? Yeah, I read that one. I really Mm -hmm. liked it. Would you think, is that the one that's about the uh, Spanish civil war? No, I think that's for the, 
for whom the bell tolls, maybe. Yeah. So both of them are after a major war. The Lost Generation um, was more disillusionment, and Beatniks were kind of, it seemed, it came across as a more, like, uplifting sort of era with the Beatniks because it was a lot more, like, social freedom and people, like, not uh, conforming to what they used to. And the Lost Generation was kind of just an era of people that were sad and, like, didn't know what to do with the rest of their lives. That's a good segue, actually, into the next topic. We get to rock and roll music. I, I thought of something. I wrote down that you wrote community and connection. I think they find that in, in the arts um, and what they're writing and reading and what they're listening to on the radio with the rock and roll. I also thought that this group is born in an age where the atomic bomb is a reality, but they also come of age learning about the Holocaust. So there's going to be some, some questioning to them in the world they live in. And, and as they become older and more vocal, they're going to land on college campuses in the 60s, and it's really going to start to blow up. Yeah, I think the I think the beatnik generation also probably you can see that to like the ties in like the '60s with um rec- like LSD and how the government uh, studied that because the beatniks were more free with that sort of thing and then like the music and like hippie culture kinda and peace. I think in my mind, I feel like that would like connect to it. I don't know. Oh, yeah, it does. And you'll see the, the youth generation really becomes um, alienated from their parents. So you have the World War II generation with their buzz cuts and their suits on, you know, and then you have these hippies living in Haight-Ashbury with long hair and dreadlocks listening to the Grateful Dead, and the parents are trying to figure out what is going on. And then Vietnam comes along, and your dad's a World War II vet. I served, your dad served in World or your granddad served in World War One. You know, go down, sign up, let's go. And they're like, no, nah, I'm not fighting a war. No way. I don't. I disagree with it. So you'll see a lot of that protest. The one thing that really grouped them together was that music. And that's where Michael come in and tell us about rock and roll, because this was scandalous stuff back in the day. Michael, tell us about rock and roll. Yeah, so rock and roll music helped to define the changing teenage culture as it gave the listeners like a sense of belonging. And they felt like more of a group together. And also had like rebellion, like you were talking about with the long hair and the like the different ways that they felt like separated from their parents and like usual society. And the time period made a lot of uh, like recognizable artists like Elvis Presley, Chuck Berry, and also like Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, who died in the plane crash tragically. Um, I used to, there was a simplicity to the lyrics that I love so much about the 1950s. And one of my favorite songs was called Leader of the Pack. You should listen to that if you get a chance. It's just, it's a breakup song in high school. But there was a scandal element to it in terms of, um, the gyrations of Elvis Presley. And if you kind of look up the, the connection to the Ed Sullivan show, once he was allowed to perform on Ed Sullivan, he kind of got the seal of approval from a pretty respected industry uh, heavyweight. So it's just like one of the late night shows, but he was on there singing to the kids. They just wouldn't show him from the, the waist down because they didn't want to see those gyrations. Um, the culture is expressed in the music, but also in the movies. What kind of movies kind of showed this emerging team teen culture that was coming about in the 1950s anyone uh, jump out at you yeah so like through the movies they started to like question the societal norms and views such as like marlon brando and the wild one and james dean and rebel without a cause nice no i yeah those are two good ones and brando went on to a pretty long career james dean was cut short and i think his um people remember him more um by what the movies he didn't make than the ones he did because i saw rebel without a cause um, wasn't that good, but that's the, you start to see that teen culture embodied in the, the films that they're going to see. Nice mm-hmm. job. That would be a good class to take to film, film in the fifties. All right. That's segment two with consensus and conformity. Now I'm going to head to um, women. And I, and I call this far from heaven, women in the 1950s. Um, 
And that's based, I stole that title from a movie of the same name, which is worth watching, a very complicated storyline of a very doting uh, 50s housewife who stays very loyal to her husband, who who sways from the marriage in interesting and complex ways. Um, so in this situation, um, I mentioned before uh, in for our first attempt at this, that the average age of engagement was 17 at this time for young ladies. And as they're being re-socialized on the TV to be housewives, it's even creeping down with kind of suggestions on how to win a man and get engaged by 17, which I'm sure sounds to you guys absolutely terrifying. But that's going to be the average age of engagement in the 50s, 17 years old. So, Braden, I want to get to you. How did uh, mass media kind of reinforce this new culture? How did the TV that you talked about earlier reinforce this new cult of domesticity for the housewife message? Uh, probably mainly through TV shows like sitcoms and like the weekly shows that they would um, just broadcast where they consistently showed those traditional gender roles and the ideal of domesticity. And you'd see it in ways, if you watch some of these shows today, you guys, it would, it would knock you out. Like the Leave it to Beaver or Father Knows Best or the I Love Lucy, there was very identifiable gender roles and you didn't sway much from them. All right, so that's what people are seeing. So young girls are watching this and they're watching their mom live up to that ideal. So this becomes the trend uh, for many years. As a side note for when I was growing up, I remember watching the Cosby show on TV and I thought nothing of the Cosby show. Later did I realize it was groundbreaking in the sense that it was two African-American um, characters. Uh, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer. They were affluent African-Americans. So you can't be what you can't see. So if you don't see female doctors on TV, how do you aspire to become that? So you think your lot and your path is going to be that housewife. So they kind of reinforce that. Derek, was that a accurate description of women in the 50s? Was this happy-go-lucky housewife who skips around and vacuums and sings and whistles as she does laundry? Is that accurate? No, most of the women in the uh, 1950s were actually largely unhappy due to all the stress around the house. And they were expected to have like multiple children. And they didn't really want to, per se, have that. So it kind of led to uh, most women being unhappy with their lives. Yeah, they were really quiet about how do you express your unhappiness when you live with material abundance? Um, your husband's gainfully employed. You live in a nice suburban home. You drive a couple new Chevys. Uh, the kids are happy, happy and healthy, and everything seems perfect. Yet it's not. Uh, and that reality really starts to set in. I want to try this clip. I'll, I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm going to give it a shot. Um, and this kind of captures the women in the 1950s. Try that again. Bum, 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 bum. For these increasingly young wives, life was good as the nation was in the midst of an economic boom. But in the women's magazines meant to guide young marriage, life was almost too good. They set an impossibly high standard for family life, even as they suggested that homemaking should fulfill all of a woman's hopes and dreams. This small, narrow domestic world, which, which does carry a, a, a strong emotional freight, was made to carry more than it should have. All right, that talking head right there was uh, Betty Friedan, and that's a great segue into our next topic and her contribution. So Betty Friedan actually is a groundbreaking author uh, who kind of changes the trajectory for women in the 20th century. Jillian, what do you got on Betty Friedan? Um, so in 1963, she published The Feminine Mystique, and it was a highly influential book that described the frustration felt by the middle-class housewives in America at the time. 
and all the societal pressure around them. Yeah. So when she's, this may not fit in our timeline because we're doing the fifties and it's published in 1963, but she actually does the legwork in the 1950s. Um, and what inspired her to, to write that book? How'd she land or, or put her pulse on the disaffection of these housewives? You know, um, she, she actually didn't want to write a book. She wasn't planning on writing a book. So she attended her college's 15-year reunion in 1957. And there she surveyed her classmates and discovered that none of them were really happy with their housewife role. And she actually tried to publish her findings in women's magazines, but all of them refused. So she decided to take it into her own hands and publish this book. Yeah, these women's magazines were run by men. (laughs) Real serious articles in there about how an unhappy housewife was looking for alternatives uh, and wasn't satisfied just taking an art class once a week. So you you young ladies should imagine this. Imagine if everything that you're going, you're taking advanced classes, you're articulate, you're educated, you're smart, but you're going to be married in two years and start having kids. The, The number of limitations that, gives a woman has got to be incredibly frustrating, which it was. Uh, It does lead, and Katie, this is a nice segue to you, uh, how does it impact that second wave of feminism? So how did this book, which will sell over 3 million copies, uh, still published today, how does that influence second wave feminism? So the work directly attacked the common held assumption that women should just um, have satisfaction from submitting to the expectations that they were uh, held to, like having children, being having a passive sexuality, cleaning and cooking, things like that. So a key figure in this was Catherine Ann Watson. She, um, this was actually to connect to a time closer to here. This was depicted in Mona Lisa style. Awesome. Um, Cause that, that kind of shows that these sorts of um, developments carried on in later centuries. I think she was inspired by this book. It kind of, it made women realize that they didn't have to do what um, was asked of them at the time. And that's a really important development. Yeah. There's options. Did you watch that movie? No, I didn't. I, I actually have seen parts of it, I think, but it's pretty, um, it's pretty well done. There's, I actually stole a, a piece of that movie for my sociology class where she analyzes the advertisements for women. So I have my sociology kids actually compare advertisements from the 1950s to today. That's a really interesting activity, but I got that from that movie. What about books that were challenging this suburban bliss in the 1950s? And it's not just necessarily just women. It also could be men. What were some books out there that were saying things aren't all as they appear? Yeah, so one of these important books was um, The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit by Solon Wilson. And he talks about it in the book about, it's about this guy named Tom and his wife. And Tom was a vet, like a veteran before and they move into a new suburban lifestyle, but they like they, they find it hard to find the satisfaction that many others seem to like have in it. And like they start to question if that's like really the way to go, and if like suburban life is really all that like it turns out to be. You think the way you draw your life up, I want to have a house, I want to have a family, I have a well-paying job, everything's looking good. Yet there's this element of dissatisfaction in there that starts to set, and that's really captured in Sloan's book. Uh, mm-hmm. Was there any others, uh, any other notable books? The Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates. And it's kind of a similar story about the uh, like a family called the Wheelers, and they fall into a suburban lifestyle, but they grow to despise it as they don't want to settle down as like you're supposed to in this suburban lifestyle. And it leads to a discussion on what it really means to be a suburbanite and if the kind of lifestyle is truly worth like all it's said to be. This conformity piece. Yeah, that was also turned into a movie. It's pretty powerful. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet reunite. It's a really, really well done movie with some complex and complicated issues. 
Uh, very cool. Last segment. You guys ready to finish strong so we can try to keep it under an hour? Yeah. Uh, this is the road to Little Rock. So I, I chose that um, language and the title and the graphic suggests that as well because this was an uneasy and difficult task they had ahead of them. Considering that we've been talking about race issues for pretty much the entire course, I framed this from 1940 to 1957. So, Braden, this goes to you. How does the African-Americans' participation in World War to kind of sow the seeds for these early civil rights uh, events and activities. So uh, they were beginning to like develop their own sense of nationalism as an American. They were serving in the war alongside their white countrymen, and uh, they were kind of expecting that they would be recognized for fighting for their freedom and other people's freedom and begin to receive like basic rights and end segregation. And this kind of started happening. Uh, the Executive Order 8802 banned discrimination in defense industries and government jobs. And this was because a lot of black people moved north and west to get jobs in those two areas. And um, it wasn't enforced very well, but it was a big step in ending segregation in their jobs. A wartime measure, too. So that's the the immediacy and the need for that labor is because we're on the war footing. So tough to push back against that when the, I think FDR said, I'm going to uh, put into play an end of segregation in, in war industries. And you have a choice. You either show up and work with black people or you get drafted into the military. So we had the, um, the threat of war and the, our active involvement in war as a real motivator there to follow those rules. And a, uh, another interesting fact was that uh, Jackie Robinson actually served in the U.S. military and ended up going on to be the first African-American to play major league baseball. Oh, nice. You, you see, um, World War II, had a, there was a lot of veterans that were uh, major sports um, personalities. Good call. In terms of, we've seen this story before, by the way, in every single war we've fought, uh, African-Americans have come back and expected some level of recognition, only to be denied that recognition real time. So that brings us to the next one with Derek, and that's the, uh, the story of uh, Isaac Woodard. Um, not a lot of people know about. Uh, Derek, what's his story? So Isaac Woodward was a World War II war veteran who on February 12th, 1946, was honorably discharged from the military and then just hours later was attacked by police in South Carolina. Now, you have an interesting storyline out of South Carolina. We have been talking about South Carolina in the entire course um, as an agitating state in the South resisting slave laws, um, promoting states' rights, uh, protesting tariffs. So that's important in this story. And uh, Linwood Shaw, the sheriff that beat him, and this, of course, is nothing new to you guys. You hear it all the time, most recently with George Floyd. Um, He almost gets beat to death simply for asking to use the restroom on a stop. Um, And he, he basically gets blinded with the end of a police club. That shows you kind of the reality down south, even though he was decorated, um, Derek just said he just got out. He just got honorably discharged, and he's just taking a bus home in his uniform, and he gets beat almost to death, which awakens Truman. How does Truman react to that? He gave a speech to the NAACP, which um, he condemned racism. Yeah, he condemns racism, and he'll actually take an action. What does he do to the military with Executive Order 99, I think it's 8081? What does he do to the military as a result of the Isaac Woodard? Anyone from the panel have that? What happens to the military after the beating of Isaac Woodard? He will integrate the military with that executive order. So from that point on, uh, the next engagement we have is the Korean War. We'll have an integrated fighting force. So Lynn Wood Shaw, this um, 
Southern sheriff from South Carolina did more for the civil rights movement than a lot of congressmen had done for many, many years because he awoken basically a sleeping giant here. And once uh, Truman integrates the military, which was a pretty gutsy move considering it was going to be an election year coming up, uh, it sets up some resistance down south, which is going to play out as, as the story moves on here. So Isaac Woodard will be blinded. Um, they'll raise money for him, end up buying him a house. He will move to New York City in the Bronx uh, and live to 1992. Um, and there's a whole nother storyline in that story that we can't really get into. But the judge um, in that case that ended up uh, acquitting the sheriff um, was so torn up by that. He is a uh, ancestor of slaveholders. He's lived in South, South Carolina his whole life. And then he realized what was happening. His name is Wadey's Waring. And he goes on to help the NAACP challenge segregation, which ultimately leads to the Brown case. It's a great little story um, behind the story. How about the story behind uh, Brown? Jillian, you want to take us there, the Brown case and Plessy versus Ferguson getting overturned? So ever since the 1896 ruling in Plessy versus Ferguson, there were growing disparities between black and white schools. In 1952, the illiteracy rate for blacks over the age of 14 was 10.2%, which is more than five times that of whites. And more than a quarter of black males completed no more than four years of schooling. And that's compared to less than 9% of white males. So So, separate is not equal. Yeah. (laughs) So in 1951, the public school district in Topeka, Kansas, refused to enroll local black man Oliver Brown's daughter in the school closest to them. So instead, they forced her to ride a bus to a black elementary school that is way farther from their home. So the Browns filed a class action lawsuit against the Topeka Board of Education, along with, I think, 12 other families. And it was appealed to the Supreme Court by NAACP Chief Counsel Thurgood Marshall, who represented the Browns at the time. And the court's decision in May of 1954 overruled the 1896 Plessy case, stating that separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. And that violates the 14th Amendment. Nice job. So you have the equal protection of the law amendment. So the reaction response to this, as you can imagine, the South does not go well. Uh, What was the Southern Manifesto? Because that was the most vocal articulation of Southern resistance. What was that? So outraged by the ruling, about 101 Southern congressmen signed the Southern Manifesto in 1956. And it claimed that the judicial branch had overstepped with their ruling and that the move to desegregate should be decided by the states. Good call. That really sets the stage for resistance. And that judge, Judge Waring, I had mentioned, uh, he said the strategy should be integrate schools immediately. It's kind of like Garrison who says immediate uncompensated emancipation. And the judge said, if you allow the South time, and then the ruling said all deliberate speed yet integrate, Mm -hmm. they are going to form resistance and they are going to push back, which is exactly what happened. And the Southern Manifesto was emblematic of that mindset. Mm -hmm. Now in that same timeframe, so we have the integration of schools, which is going to be a slow roll. 1955, we have the case of Emmett Till and and a horrible uh, example of Southern justice. Katie, can you tell us about Emmett Till and his case? So Emmett was a 14-year-old African-American from Chicago, and he was visiting uh, his cousins in Mississippi in 1955, and they were hanging out at this corner store, and after he was accused of making inappropriate advances towards Carolyn Bryant in the store, so she told her her husband and his brother, and they uh, went to his uncle's house, or his great-uncle's house, and took him away down to uh, the river, and they uh, brutally mutilated and murdered him. This was a really 
enigmatic kind of case because finally it was even though they should be counted the same when you see a child that's been um submitted subjected to this type of treatment it kind of it lighted a fire underneath the, the civil rights movement and caused it to um gain a lot of traction that's a good point because we we saw that too with the triangle shortwaist factory when you see young kids uh, impacted by injustice, it really does light that fire, and it definitely happened with Emma Till. What role did his mom play too by deciding to have an open casket uh, for her funeral? As painful as it was for her, she, I think she knew that if people were able to see the brutality that he endured, that um, it would get a lot more attention. And she also let, um, I think it's called Jet Magazine. It was an yeah. African American yeah. magazine. She let them publish up publish a picture of him and then that gained a nationwide notoriety they uh, thousands of people ended up attending the funeral and it was at in his home sh- city of chicago at robert's temple church of god right, so you did have that's a nice connection to it chicago because his family is part of that great migration that we looked at in the early 1900s so from 1900 to 1970 about seven million african-americans leave the south of the north his family was one of those families so he was going back down to a south that he truly didn't understand his age is important. And I think you're right about the world seeing that, not just domestically, the world, because this plays into the civil rights movement and the gains that we made were because we had to polish our image on the global stage. The Russians are looking at us and saying, oh, you know, we're the bad guys as communists. You're, you're murdering kids for allegedly whistling at a white woman. You're not letting white kids go to school with black kids. And we're the bad guys. So it's, we're really aware of that. And I think that really accelerates our legislation and court cases to address the, the inequities that are ever present. Uh, another case, and this is a kind of uh, probably the most well-known case, would be the Rosa Parks. Michael, what's Rosa Parks' story? Why doesn't she give up her seat in Montgomery? Well, Parks famously removed, like refused to move from the seat because she said that she shouldn't have to move just because of her race, even though that was a lot of time. And this was part of the Montgomery bus boycott, which was a, a successful year-long boycott on the Montgomery buses of Alabama, and many others would follow in her actions. Yeah, and this woman... Uh, well, 42 years old and very well known. What role did that play? Her age, her occupation and her, her activism in the community. What role did that play making her the face of this movement? You know what she did for a living? I think she wasn't she a seamstress before this. And I think that like it was just good that she was like a strong central figure that others could like look to and be inspired by her actions as like, they were very impactful for the time. Yeah, you know, and you associate, you think about if there's ever a cause or an organization that you are personally connected to, it's probably because you know someone within the organization or the movement. Mm-hmm. So as a seamstress, she knew a lot of families. She was working in a pretty progressive Southern town. She was a, a respected and pretty well-known member of the community. So people could identify with her. They knew her as a non-threat and she was just tired. She had worked all day. And the other thing, um, she had the image from Jet Magazine of Emmett Till burned in her brain. And she's like, I'm not getting up. All right. So she took the $10 fine and uh, the rest is history. Like you said, a successful bus boycott led to the integration of the buses. You want to get people's attention, hit them in the pocketbook. That's been a theme the entire year. All right. We are close to the hour. We're going to finish up with the Little Rock Nine. Um, and this will be um, the application of a state's rights federal government standoff. So the Brown case says all deliberate speed in Arkansas. Um, ironically, Arkansas had already integrated college level schools. And um, so the way you want to think about this, because it seems kind of odd, 
Arkansas had allowed upper level college classes to be integrated because a lot of people down south said, I understand that black people need doctors and lawyers too, because we live in a separate society. So let them be educated as doctors and lawyers. More contentious as they got down to the uh, elementary and high school levels. So that's a problem. So what happens in Little Rock, about a thousand black students from Horace Mann High School, actually it's it's less than that. It's about a hundred students that dwindles down to nine, um, decided to transfer to an all white school called Central High School because it had more resources and opportunities. It was the nicest school in the state. They show up on September 3rd for school and they're met by local police and and an angry white mob that will resist their entrance into the school. Once again, the media is covering this and they're beaming these images around the world. So Russia watches this play out and as they smile over their morning vodka, they're like, all right, we're the bad guys. This is ridiculous. So school's going to be closed down and eventually the Uh, federal government has to send paratroopers down there for the 101st Airborne into Arkansas to escort these kids into school. So the Little Rock Nine, once they're in school, um, that's where it gets kind of dicey. So they get escorted to and from, but they still had to endure all kinds of nastiness uh, when they were in classes there. All right. So the integration piece is going to play out on the national scene and the global scene, and it forces the hand of Eisenhower to send troops. So we'll have troops in the South for the first time um, since Reconstruction, and we are basically telling the South, you will integrate. All right? Some uh, states close schools. In uh, Prince Edward County of Virginia, they just closed their schools for four years. So if you're an African-American, you didn't have opportunities. If you were white, you could go to a private school. So this comes out to um, slow integration in the South, which will take a while. But the one thing you're going to want to think about, if I could layer these two issues over one another, we are stopping black kids from going to school with white kids. And at the same time, Sputnik gets launched into space and the Russians now have satellites in space. So now you see we've got some problems on our hands and, and you guys will probably appreciate this. At this time, we create a thing called the Advanced Placement Program for high schools where we want to accelerate um, our more rigorous educational requirements uh, also in science. Uh, so across the board, the AP program gets started in this time period to, to pay more attention, uh, not so much to rock and roll, but to academics, because it looks like the Russians are beating us into space, which, of course, is a problem. I'm going to uh, end with Sputnik in 1957. Uh, much appreciate you guys. Uh, we're just over an hour. I'll try to edit this down to under an hour for us. Yeah, I forgot the most important part of the Emmett Till story. Oh, came forward and 62 years later and she said that it wasn't true she fabricated the story yes she did uh horrific um yeah and a little deathbed confession never happened the whole thing was fabricated and and unfortunately a good chunk of all the crimes committed against african americans the lynchings the murders were based on false accusations um and you just get a little lynch mob and a fear and that's what happens yep she uh, made the whole thing up karma came back to the Bryans, though they lost pretty much everything and they were uh, pretty much run out of town one of the reasons why is they actually sold their story after the acquittal and where they admitted murdering him uh, and I think it was J.W. Milan who actually ended up buying a brand new Chevrolet with the money he got from selling the story. So people are like, uh, you just murdered a kid for, you know, it just didn't make sense. So they got their just due. Uh, they were hurt economically, which was nice to hear. But um, she's going to have a difficult time resting in peace for that. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that in to close that deal out. Anyone else have any last minute things to add? All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks Bye, very much. Thank you. We'll see you soon. We account of prisoners.
We haven't made the final count, sir. I bring a message from your master, Marcus Licinius Crassus, commander of Italy, by command of his most merciful excellency, your lives are to be spared. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 All right. Thank you for listening to our conversation about early Cold War domestic issues in the United States. Uh, Our next topic is going to take us from the later 50s into the early 1960s. See you then.